Well, today is a special Sunday, and actually it's been a, a special weekend here at Christ Community Church. Um, this morning you're in for a bit of a treat. We, we are unpacking for our sermon this morning the, the theme text that's been our, our theme for this year, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 through 13, extolling God's faithfulness. And this morning, you're, you're not getting just to hear from me. I'm the, the, typical, the, the, the typical senior pastor. I'm, I'm the regu- regular senior pastor. I'm the senior pastor at this church. But you're also going to get to hear from other men who have shepherded God's people at this church throughout the 80s and the 90s, Michael Delamarian and Doug Kyle. And so we together will be preaching from this passage. But don't worry, uh, as my wife looked over at me, she says, are you preaching each a sermon, or an hour and a half of preaching? No. Uh, we will just share this text together. And so we're looking forward to just celebrating God's word with you. If you didn't bring a Bible, don't worry about it. We have printed out the passage on the flyer that's on your seat. And so what I'd like to do as we start unpacking God's word, tradition here we have at Christ Community is to stand together and read God's word. So if you have a Bible or you can use that flyer in front of you, would you stand as we read 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 11 to 15. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What a prayer from David. What a perspective. And in a very, very small way, we are praying and celebrating that same faithfulness of God and that same reality of hope that King David and the Israelites did three millennia ago when this was recorded. I've just read the last prayer that David would pray as king before his son Solomon succeeds him. David, along with all the nation of Israel here, is celebrating God's rich provision and God's faithfulness to his people. In 1 Chronicles 29, they are on the cusp of a a golden era as a people of God. For the first time in generations, maybe since their inception in the book of Exodus, the people of God are experiencing safety from their enemies. The people of God are flourishing. They're prospering. The people of God are experiencing God's blessings in a way they have never understood before. Real, practical, tangible blessings. And they are all experiencing right now. So much so that 1 Kings chapter 10 tells us that the nations would come to Israel in awe of God's blessing and his love being displayed on his people. So when we're reading 1 Chronicles 29 here, we have to ask the question, well, what exactly are we looking at here in the immediate context, in the immediate context of this passage? It is that Solomon, the king, is going to succeed his father David and immediately begin construction on the temple of the Lord. That becomes really the center of Jewish life for centuries and centuries to come. In the historical context, this is a passage that describes the Israelites who will build the temple of the Lord in the land of Israel with David's son as their king. But from a Christian context, as we look at 1 Chronicles 29, what we see, we're we're seeing God's people experiencing God's presence in God's place with God's king on the throne. And there is safety, prosperity, peace, fulfillment, joy, and pleasure. 
It is a golden era for the people of God here. And friends, what this passage tells us, this is a picture of what life is supposed to be like. What the Israelites here are experiencing at the end of 1 Chronicles is a picture of what the gospel promises that all humanity can experience. As God's King, Jesus Christ, sits upon the throne and draws to Himself all of God's people and places them in God's presence in His kingdom. What we see here in 1 Chronicles 29 is a picture of what the gospel does, and to God's people there is safety, there is flourishing, there is prosperity, there is joy and pleasure. Now, of course, in 1 Chronicles 29, David and God's people then, they didn't understand all the details of how God's redemptive plan for humanity would work itself out. But nonetheless, they serve as an example to us, a model of how do we interact with God in a world that can be so full of uncertainty and anxieties and strife like their world was. And so the question we have to ask as we look at 1 Chronicles 29 is in this world of uncertainty, in this world of strife, in this world of instability, how can they, how did they experience God in such a way that it brought them prosperity and flourishing and they were able to develop a mighty kingdom that in some small way could signify the the hope that God had for all of humanity. More to the point, the question we ask is, is there something we can learn as individual Christians? Is there something we can learn as a church from what God was doing in the people of God here in First Chronicles that teaches us how to live in such a way that the people look at upon our lives and say, wow, is this how God loves and blesses his people? In short, friends, 1 Chronicles 29 is a witness of what God is using them as a witness to the world to say, this is what it's like to live under God's good rule. This is what it's like to have the Lord as king in your life. That's the role that the people of God have played in the scriptures. That's the role that the people of God play today. That as people look at our lives, they say, if that's what it looks like to have the Lord as your God, I want that too. So this morning, as we unpack this, Doug, Michael, and I are just going to make a couple of three quick observations from this passage that teach us, okay, how do we need to understand God such that our lives can reflect this so that we can have that flourishing and prosperity and blessing of God so that we don't just experience that for ourselves, but can be a witness to the world. This is what life is like under God's good rule. And I'll look at the first one. It's found in verse 11, and it's, it's basically this. That we need to learn to see God correctly. Maybe put another way, is to have a view of God worthy of God himself. Look at verse 11 right there. Notice David is not using adjectives to describe God. He's not saying, God, you are a glorious God, God, that, that, that he's a powerful God, that he's a victorious God. Notice David's not using adjectives. David's using nouns. Look at that. He's saying, whatever greatness is, it's God. Whatever glory is, it's God. Whatever majesty, whatever victory is, that's God. King David had a view of God that was worthy of God himself. And friends, this is a really important place to start, isn't it? Having a view of God so large that it overcomes the anxieties and concerns of our lives. Having a view of God so large that it forces through the things that stress us and concern us and so often jam our lives up. And friends, this is what makes to me the Christian worldview so appealing. 
You see, on the one hand, Christianity is not idealistic. The Christian worldview is not, is not blind to the fact that we live in a very difficult world where there are real challenges. The Christian worldview is not idealistic in that God will take care of everything and everything always comes up roses. It understands there are challenges, there are difficulties, real challenges, real difficulties. But on the other hand, the Christian worldview is also not fatalistic. It's not so in despair that everything's so wrong and horrible that we just need to raise it all down, burn it all down, and start over. You see, the Christian worldview is neither idealistic nor is it fatalistic, but the Christian worldview is very realistic. If you read Scripture, the Bible's very aware that we face real challenges. But the hope that the Bible gives us is that we have a very real champion to meet those challenges. We see that all throughout the Scriptures. Two things you're going to learn as you read, especially 1st, 2nd Chronicles, and the, the history of the people of Israel and that is the first thing is that if you are not afraid, you're not paying attention to what's going on in this world. And things haven't changed much from three millennia ago today. If you're not afraid, you're not paying attention to what's going on in the world. But the second thing Scripture teaches us is that if you stay afraid, if you remain afraid, you're not paying attention to what God says in His Word. You see, the Bible's very understanding of the world we live in and the challenges we have. It's a very realistic, of the, realistic view of the world. But look at the great hope that David has right there. You see in the second part of verse 11, he says that all things in heaven and earth are his. But notice what God does with that. I'm going to dip a little bit into verse 12, but I'm not going to take away from Michael's preaching, but I just want to share this. It's the second half of verse 12. He says, in your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. Friends, what an encouragement that the God who owns it all freely gives it all. How encouraging that the God who owns it all freely gives it all to his people. Friends, we need to hear that because some of us are fearful. We need to hear that because some of us are having a hard time in life. We all need to hear it because it's true. That God's name is only matched by his generosity and benevolence to all, and David knew it, and his people knew it, and we can know it too. But the question we have to ask as we look at the scriptures is, do I have a view of God that is, that is this big that it shapes everything else that I see? Now, I know in a, in, a, in a congregation like this size, there will be very few of you who would disagree with what David says. And so what I want to do is kind of make two suggestions, two brief suggestions, then I'm going to hand it off about maybe some things we can do that would help expand our view of God such that we could experience God's blessing more in our lives. So two brief practical things you can do. The first one is this. Number one, don't confuse being busy with being effective. I say this particularly if you are a Christian or, and you're trying to understand God better, or if you're not a Christian and you're trying to understand what Christianity teaches, from a spiritual perspective, don't confuse just being busy with being effective. One of my early mentors said this, the busyness of life is a constant threat to the awesomeness of God. Boy, that's true. The busyness of our lives is a constant threat against the awesomeness of God, so slow down see more. It's not a matter of quantity. 
matter of quality. It's not how many church services or Bible studies you might go to. It's what you're taking from them that counts. Slow down. See more. The single best thing you can do, friends, for the people in your life is to have a deeply abiding hope in God. And the single best way you can do that is to be awed by Him and His works. And the best way you can do that is to slow down and learn of Him. Psalm 111.2 says, Great are the works of our God, and studied by all those who delight in Him. So the first thing we need to do to have a bigger view of God is don't confuse a busy life as one that's an effective life. Because sometimes it takes slowing down to learn the things of God, paying attention, not filling our lives with so many great things that we miss out on the most important things. Secondly, learn the difference between the trivial and the important. I, I, I know I don't have to say this to many of you, but can I just be honest? Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, most of what's on YouTube, Netflix, and the mainstream media, everything about celebrity news, it's trivial, not really that important, right? Being in, being in God's word, fellowshipping with the saints, caring for one another, bearing one another's burdens, being available for God's use, significant, important. Can you imagine how big your view of God would be if you spent as much time reading the word as you did on social media, right? I mean, if you just prayed half as much as we post, how richer our souls would be. Learn to understand the difference between those things that are trivial and those things that are actually important. Don't be busy in your life. Be effective with your life. If we just did those two practical things, our view of God would expand and become so much bigger. In short, when we see God more clearly, like David, like the people in 1 Chronicles 29, when we see God more clearly, we begin to see everything else much more clearly. I want to invite Adam and the team back up to the platform um, as they're going to lead us in a couple more songs. After that, Michael's going to lead us into verse 12, and he's going to talk about how God's faithfulness and his generosity just didn't include David and this generation, but to all generations. And after Michael, Doug's going to wrap us up by thinking about, helping us think about how do we then respond to this generous, gracious, faithful God. My wife and I spent some of the three best years of our ministry here, and we just want to thank It's such a nurturing time. And it allowed us to go up north in Northern California and minister there for years. And we just, we remember this place in the early 80s with fond memories. I don't know if there's been a book written about a guy named George McCloskey. I don't know if there's been any biography about him. But he's a simple guy. He's a farmer from Kansas that he decided to make a shrewd investment. He decided to pray for his family for one hour every day from 11 a.m. till 12. And he'd set that time aside and he'd pray for his family. He was just married, didn't have kids, but he knew kids were going to come, hoped kids were going to come. And so he just started praying for them. And so he prayed. And they had two daughters. And he prayed for his two daughters. And like any father, he prayed first for their health and their safety. 
And they, he prayed most of all for their salvation. They came to put their faith in Christ as their Savior. And then he said they, they need to pray for wise decisions and discernment as they grew up, they, that they would mature in their faith. Then he prayed for the big prayer, that they would marry the right guys. And his prayers were answered, and they both married, they both got married, and they married men who went into full-time ministry. And so George was thinking, I'm not just going to pray for them, but I'm going to pray for the generation to come and the generation after that. So those two produced uh, three, three girls, excuse me, four girls and one boy. And he started praying for his grandchildren and their faith in the Lord. And they came to know Christ as the Lord and Savior. Those four girls each married pastors. And the one young man went into the ministry. And so he's praying generations out. The first two boys to come from the next generation, they accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. They went to a Christian college, and they were actually, the cousins were roommates, and they lived together, and the sophomore year, one of the boys said, I feel called to go into the ministry. And the other uh, young man didn't feel that call. So in a sense, he kind of was known as the black sheep. He's the only one in like three or four generations that didn't go into full-time ministry or marry someone who was a pastor. His leaning was towards psychology. Studied that, graduated, got a master's, got a doctor from USC. But he felt the call to write a book on Christian parenting. He wrote a book, it was a bestseller. He wrote another book, it became another bestseller. All of a sudden, doors were open to him to minister beyond his counseling and psychology. And so he started a radio station, the Black Sheep started a radio shape station in Southern California. And he went on hundreds of stations, and then they exited like everybody else from California and went to Colorado. And he, his organization has now heard over a thousand radio stations across America. And the black sheep of the family is James Dobson. And the organization is focused on the family. And I just think that that one man, George McCluskey, had the insight and the wisdom to pray for not just his generation, but generation after generation after generation that they would come to know the Lord and that they would serve him. God is a God for every generation. And as Pastor Rick shared, in this context of First Chronicles, David is passing on the baton of his faith to Solomon. He's passing on the baton of leadership to Solomon. And he's saying, Solomon, this is what I've done. This is what I've, I want you to carry it on. And some people see the Christian life, and it's like a relay race. And if you watch relay races, one guy starts, he's got the baton, and he runs a lap, and you've got a certain length of time, you've got to hand the baton to the next person. And what can't you do, or you get disqualified? What is it? You can't drop the baton. You've got to hand it on, and that person takes the next leg. And so in this context, this is what David sees. David is fully acknowledging the grace, the greatness and power of, and glory of the Lord, the majesty in all of heaven and earth. God is dominion, and he has the right to exalt over all. And then in this passage, he breaks out, and he says, both riches and honor come from you. Now, the context of this is David is understanding things from an eternal perspective. And if you're a follower of Christ and you read the Bible, you realize that the culture's perspective on riches and the Bible's perspective on riches are night and day. We live in a culture who, whose mantra is this, make all you can, 
can all you get, make all you can, can all you get, and then sit on the can. They, and, and so they just keep their money, they hoard. But David's saying this in the context of this, because in the context of this, you read the first nine verses, David realizes, I'm not going to build a temple, but I have the finances to give to build a temple. He's not looking just to his generation. He's looking generations ahead. And if you read, he just dumps a whole bunch of money to build a temple. Gold and silver and iron. And then he encourages the leaders of the house to do the same. And they pour all this money so they can build this temple so that generations to come will worship. See, the God is a God for every generation. And David was building that platform for it. Riches in honor come from the Lord. David fully understands that it came from God and it belongs to God. There used to be a pastor who made uh, calls in, way back when, and when there was homes or his children, he brings boxes of chocolate for the children. And, uh, of course, he ring the doorbell, and the kids are excited because they know what they're going to get. And as each kid came, he would give them a box of chocolates. And he noted there was two distinct reactions to the kids who got the box of chocolates. Many of them would take the box of chocolates, say thank you, and they just run into the room, and they just, and 50 minutes later, there would be chocolate all over the cheeks and on their fingertips and stuff like that. He said occasionally, some of the children would take the box of chocolate, open it up and look at it, and then offer it back to the pastor and says, no, you take one first. And he would say, no, 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 I gave them to you. But the, the child would say, no, but the chocolates were yours to begin with. You take one first. And people who have built ministries and people in this church and the people who did the groundbreaking, the people who saw the vision to buy this land back in the 70s and to build these buildings and these structures, just like David, they had that vision. We're going to do it for generations to come. God is the God for every generation and so the question is, what does God want us to do with wealth? Just like David, we've been blessed to be a blessing to others. Wow, what an amazing thing to have this campus and these facilities so you can be a blessing to others. And not just a place to worship, but you've been blessed to bless others. If you look through that 50-year uh, pamphlet, it's beautiful. You realize that this church has sent people out to Corpus Christi, Texas for mission trips, to Haiti, to Papua New Guinea, to all over the world. That the money that they've been blessed and they give towards the Lord's work have not just supported pastoral staff and church staff, but missionaries. They've supported quartets that have sang in Eastern Europe and brought the gospel there. That's what David is talking about. Uh, he is talking about the gospel going and using the riches to uh, bless other people with it. And then he says in this passage, both riches and honor come from the Lord. From the very inception of this church, they understood that honor go belongs to God. And so we're going to honor God by worshiping him. We're going to honor God by giving. We're going to honor God by serving him. We're going to honor God in every single aspect that we can think of. Honor belongs to God. And we give it back to him in ways. God wants and desires us to pass that on. God is a God for every generation. Later, Solomon, or excuse me, David would write these words in Psalm 71. By, by you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me um, from my mother's womb. My praise is continually for you. Oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I am old and gray, 
Oh God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation. And that's what we're doing. Generation to generation, we're passing on the faith. We're passing on a baton of faith, the legacy of faith uh, to the next generation. The Lord wants every generation, every generation to nurture their spiritual faith, faith and pass it on to the next generation. God is the original idea that it goes from generation to generation. Deuteronomy had it uh, right. and says, Deuteronomy 4, 9 says, Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently so that you do not forget the things that your eyes have seen and they do not depart from your heart all the days of your life, but make them known to your sons and your grandsons. Paul saw that in Timothy. In 2 Timothy 1, he says, I'm reminded of the sincere faith which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and then in your mother Eunice and now that's in you. And so we see this generation being passed on, the generation of the faith, faith in Christ. God is the original avenger. Nobody's more powerful than God. He has strength, he has power, and he gives it to everyone, as Rick says. He's all-inclusive. He will give it to anybody. He's absolutely impartial. Twice in this verse it says either to all or to everyone. God is all-inclusive. Now, you may have never heard of George McCluskey. But if you've been around Christ Community Church for any length of time, you've heard of people like Rich and Barb McIntyre, Donnie and Kathy Shoffett, Cliff and Nancy Cox, and Gary and Sally Keller, and Art and Linda Cheney. And you've heard of, of people like Dave and Kathy Tagg, and Lee and Carolyn Day, And we remember Paul and Marsha Stevens, and Don and Sarah Carpenter, and Lyle and Verna Lucas. And they brought their children, and their children had heard the faith of Christ, and many of the children are passing on their faith. And what's crazy, in this church, their grandchildren are coming. And I even think their great-grandchildren are coming. There's four generations of faith represented in this church. It's exactly what David's saying. It's to all. It's to everyone. God is absolutely inclusive. Some say the, the a metaphor of the baton, the relay race, is a good one. But the better metaphor, the better metaphor is one of the Olympic torch. You hold it high, and you run the length that you're supposed to run, and you pass it to the next person. But you don't stop running. You run next to them, and they just keep running as a crowd until you can't run anymore. And I thought, wow, this verse, as David is passing on the baton of faith to Solomon, and this church represents that. They're passing on their baton of faith from generation to generation. And I like to think that we run along with them. And when we can't run, we walk. When we can't walk, we shuffle. And we just run along with them until that faith is carried from generation to generation. There's a recent study done at UCLA, USC and Pepperdine University. And one of the questions was done for the graduating seniors was one of the questions is, what do you want to accomplish in your life? 
This is people just graduating from those universities, UCLA, USC, and Pepperdine. What do you want to accomplish in your life? And they had about 20 answers. And, uh, you know, there's answers like to invent something, to uh, all this stuff. The number one answer, the number one answer from graduating seniors from UCLA, USC, and Pepperdine was this, to have and raise a good family. It's the number one answer. And I'm just telling you, pleading with you, to have and to raise a good family starts here. It starts with the Christian faith, the cornerstone. And you live and you model it and you pass it on to your kids and your grandkids and maybe even your grand, great-grandkids. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3 is beautiful. He says, Now I bow my knees in, uh, before the Father in heaven, from whom every family on heaven and earth derives its name, that he may grant you according to his riches to be strengthened with power by his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may know what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, and to be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Pass the torch. Keep it up. My part of the passage today comes from 1 Chronicles 29, 13, and it perfectly captures the, the joy of this celebration. It says this, and now we thank you, our God, and praise you, your glorious name. I mean, what more could be said knowing that, that God has birthed this church, built this church, preserved it, and used it for now going into beyond five decades. And now we thank you, our God, and we praise your glorious name. I uh, served here, had the privilege of serving here back from uh, 1986 through uh, 1994. It looked a little different back here in the late 80s, uh, early 90s. Uh, anyone around back in those days? Nice. They look pretty good too. <laughs> for those who have joined this church since then, it is important for you to understand that you are standing on the shoulders of some very gracious and long-suffering people that welcomed this young, green kid fresh out of seminary and graciously put up with my clumsy attempts at service, my amateur preaching, and developed as I developed as a young pastor. I, I talked to someone uh, this morning as I got here. He said the first time he came was a Sunday I preached, and he still stayed. So that's uh, a good indication. I am so grateful. Uh, to this day, so much of who I am is shaped by by you, the leadership of Don Smith in those formative years. And I, I genuinely then connect with David's prayer, which says, and now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Fifty years ago, God placed a dream in the hearts of men and women that in this place, 
there could be a church and all that it could become. That this could be a place where the gospel was proclaimed, the Bible championed, a community cared for, and the faith passed on. That this could be a place where, where youth groups would gather in this parking lot and be prayed for as they went off to camps and, and retreats. That missionaries would be commissioned, that lives would be changed, that, that people would be discipled, that babies would be dedicated. A place where the passing of loved ones would be honored. Where Vacation Bible School and Adventure Week would sprawl through this courtyard where a preschool would teach toddlers to sing and, and really believe that Jesus loves me, as they taught our kids when they were preschoolers. And brides and grooms would be united in marriage before the Lord. In fact, 34 years ago, to this very day, that would have made Christ Community Church about 16 or 17 uh, in its awkward teenage years. It was 34 years ago to this very day in this very place that Cindy and I stood in front of the church and Pastor Don Smith pronounced us husband and wife. So cool to be back. Yes, thanks for throwing a party for us. So, so cool to be in, in the place that it all started. And we snuck into the, what was the sanctuary then and took a selfie to remind ourselves of what God has done in those, in those years. Happy anniversary. I still do. So much has happened in this place over the last five decades. God had a great plan. So how, how do we respond to, to such blessing and generosity by God? As Rick powerfully reminded us, of course, we need to focus on the greatness of God. Uh, of course, we need to remember who He is and, and to realize that a correct view of Him will give us the right perspective on everything else. As Michael thoughtfully reminded us, Everything comes from God, and he wants to leverage that for future generations. But where does that all lead? In light of God's greatness and his blessing, how do, how do we respond? How, how do we appropriately respond to, to a God who planted a, a dream of a church on a hill in South Orange County that would have impact for decades to come? Verse 13 mentions two ways. It says, and now we thank you, our God, and we praise your glorious name. We respond with both thanks and praise. Let me ask you this. In all the excitement of this day, have you taken time to personally thank God for all that he has done in your life, specifically for you through this church? Tomorrow, uh, Cindy and I head off to Yosemite. Uh, we used to take youth groups from this church there when we were here, and uh, we've pretty much gone every year since. Uh, tomorrow we take off, and there's a trail that has kind of captured my imagination of what it means to thank God, and it's, it's kind of, for me, uh, captured uh, what thanking God is all about. It's called the Mist Trail. Some of you know it. Every summer, millions of gallons of water avalanche over the Vernal Falls into the valley. But only a fraction of that water returns, raises up in a mist uh, on the, uh, the hikers, soaking the hikers on the trail nearby. Over the years, it's kind of served as a very sober reminder to me of the, the difference, the ratio between God's goodness that is poured into our lives and the thanks that we tend to return. I mean, gazillions of blessings pour into our lives every day. I know this convicts me, but just a fraction of thanks return heavenward. 
I guess part of it is because we get so preoccupied with our own worries. Christian author John Orberg reminds us that thankfulness actually lifts us from the things that consume us. He writes, gratitude is the ability to experience life as a gift. It liberates us from the prison of self-preoccupation. That is, thankfulness lifts our eyes above ourselves and liberates us from the self-absorbed life. When we realize the greatness of God and His generosity in our lives as evidenced in this day, the first way we respond is with thanks. The other way God calls us to respond in this passage is with praise. The Hebrew word for praise here is hallel. It's the first part of our word, hallelujah. It means to praise, to extol as worthy, to celebrate someone's renown. Our English word praise actually is related to the word prize. When we praise God, we are saying that we prize God. We, you've heard the word of praise, right? When we appraise something, you determine its worth. In a similar way, when we worship God, we demonstrate who we value, who we prize, who we give our highest worth to. It's interesting that David began this prayer with praise. Way back in verse 10, it starts this way. It says, And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. He starts with praise. And then down in verse 20, he also ends his prayer with praise. It says this, Then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God, which is another way of saying praise the Lord. And, and notice that's a command. We notice that it's a command because the sentence continues, And all the assembly blessed the Lord and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord their King. Now, as people, you and I, we are wired to praise. We, we do it instinctively. Parents praise their kids. Grandparents praise their grandkids. Teachers praise their students. Coaches praise their teams. We praise the things that we, we, we value and the people that we love. I heard about one little girl who, who said to her dad, Daddy, let, let's go play cornhole. I'll throw the beanbags and you say awesome. <laughs> she, she was used to her dad singing her praises. As people, we are wired to praise. But as this passage today reminds us, God is behind everything good that we want to admire or enjoy or prize. As our passage says, everything comes from God and everything belongs to God. Behind every good and generous gift, then, is the God who graciously shares it with us to enjoy. And this is, certainly is true when it comes to five decades that God has given us as a church in this place. So today is a great day, according to this passage, to thank God and to praise Him. But I would be remiss if I did not mention one more thing. This is a forward-looking prayer, not back. This was a dedication prayer for a temple that was yet to be built. This was a commissioning prayer for Solomon, a king yet to be king. As appropriate as it is for us to look back on 50 years, at the end of the day, we must always remember that God calls us to look forward. 
as the three of us, the three speakers this morning, prepared to, uh, to share the pulpit this morning, Pastor Rick told me this. He said, when, when it comes to the story of Christ Community Church, we each get to play a part for just a season, and then we pass it on. As appropriate as, as it is on this day to look back and give thanks, at the end of the day, we must remember that God calls us to look forward. So here's to the second half of a century. Here's all that God longs to do, all the lives He longs to touch, all the impact that He longs to have still through you and through those you reach in the generations to come. Let's continue to look forward as God's continuing story of Christ's community church unfolds before our very eyes. Happy 50th anniversary. It looks good on you. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. Lord God, we do uh, give you thanks and praise today. We are so grateful for uh, being in this place and having been in this place for five decades plus. For all the lives that you've touched, all the people that you have used, all the, uh, the, the courses of people's destinies that have been changed because of their time here. And Lord, we uh, give you praise today for who you are and what you've done. We give you thanks for all that we've experienced and all that we have seen and for the many things that we have not seen, but we trust that you've been doing uh, around us and beyond us. And Lord, we dedicate and commit this time to you. We commit this place to you for the, the next 50 years, that you would have your hand of blessing upon it. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.